Good morning, Harvest Church. Would you stand as we worship the Lord this morning?
God, you are all powerful. We sing to your name this morning.
cover. We're so grateful, Lord, for your power. Lord, as we ponder the power of the living God, I pray, God, that we would ponder what that means in our lives, in our relationships, Lord, and especially heavy on my heart today are marriages, Lord. So as we take a kind of a Selah moment and just pause, Lord, help us to grab, grab hold of that power for our marriages and for the marriages of those, the people in our lives, Lord God, that we love and care for so deeply, Lord. As we take a moment of pause and I'm going to stop talking as, as you feel led. If you feel like, man, God's given you something to pray for, a verse, word of encouragement, go ahead and speak up loudly so we can hear and agree with you. And um, we'll just take a moment, just as you feel led, just as you feel led.
pray for your Holy Spirit that you would unite us, strengthen us, uphold us. Because we know that, Father, in the breaking down of the marriage comes the breaking down of the country. We see that happening all over. So I ask, Father, that you would help us to stand strong. And I thank you for your precious son's name. And we pray for strength for marriages, God, for healing. God, the grace would be extended. God, there would just be exceeding health and kindness and grace for one another, Lord God, that we would live together in harmony as husbands and wives, Lord God, extending wonderful kindness and grace. God, where we're not being kind. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and give us the grace to be kind when we want to do something different. We want to lash out. We want to say something that will only further harm, Lord God. So give us the grace to love unconditionally, supernaturally. So everything that you ask us to do in this life requires a supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, the the word and the will of God through us to do what you've asked us to do. So I pray, God, that we would have greater capacity to believe, greater ability to understand what that looks like and how to walk it out, and then just greater fruitfulness as a result of just allowing that to flow and and intentionally just moving forward with that grace and power, doing the stuff that you've called us to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We're going to sing another song. And for those tuning in, online and watching this service, we know that there's a bit of silence on your end, Um, and I would just encourage you to take that silent opportunity just to worship and just to be present with the Lord. I would encourage you not to be put off by that or be distracted by the silence, um, but just to be present with the Lord during that time. And for us who are gathered, we can't always hear what's being prayed or said or communicated. Um, and that's okay. Uh, the people around those who are speaking, they hear it. And uh, so we just need to be patient with that process and okay with that process that God's doing stuff. And even if we can't fully hear, by God's grace, we can just be in a worshipful place and agree and just uh, see what the Lord will do as we just humbly wait during this time. So we're going to be um, doing this Sundays and um, as part of an act, our act of worship toward the Lord. And so I'm going to step down now. We're going to sing another song, and then we'll, uh, we'll keep moving forward. Amen. Let's, let's continue to worship. to do the same. 
your children then you hear your children now you are the same god you are the same god you answered prayers back then and you will answer now you are the same god you are the same god you were providing then you are providing now you are the same god you are the same god you moved in power then god
today. Fill us this morning. We just ask that your, your Holy Spirit would fill this place, Lord. We're here for you. We're in awe of your goodness this morning. God, we just ask that your will would be done in this place. We, we lift up our hearts to you. We offer our hearts to you. We ask that whatever you want to do in and through our lives, whatever you want to do in our hearts, whatever you want to do in our minds, Lord, we, we just give ourselves to you completely, fully, totally, Jesus, because that's the only way we can experience freedom through you is just giving ourselves totally to you. So, Lord, we relinquish our rights to our minds, our bodies, our souls, our hearts, and we just give it to you, Lord. We just ask that you would do your work through us. You'd work in us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right. You're welcome to take a seat if you'd like. My name is Curtis. It's great to have you all here this morning. Um, first, before I get into announcements, I just want to say that it's Tim, Tim's birthday here. Yeah. It's, uh, Tim's our tech director here playing bass today. No, no, he's not 17. He's, no, he's a bit older than that. Anyway, <laughs> um, I won't divulge how old he is. Anyway, um, but yeah, he's doing amazing things through the tech, and obviously you can, he's scheduling all of our team members and stuff and doing a great job. So um, thank you, Tim. Doing amazing. Uh, so, yes. Also, so we've got um, some life group signups happening next week, so stay tuned for that. We've got some amazing life groups coming up. If you want to get connected into the church, if you're new here, um, or if you just don't know very many people, please um, join a life group next week. Uh, we'll, we'll have a life group flyer available for you. You can look through them and pick the best one for you. Um, we're just, we offer these so that you can get connected and so that you don't feel like you're on the outside. And oftentimes it can be easy to just be a spectator at church. We want you to be involved. We want you to get to know people. All right? Sound good? All right. So sign up next week for those. Um, also, we've got a new college group starting up. So um, it's great because we've had kind of a gap between high school and then young professionals. And so now we've got a college group for you if you're, if you're in the college age. Um, feel free to join that. It starts beginning of September. So uh, if you want more information, you can head back to the Info Center with that. And if this is your first time here or if you're newer as well, we would love to just get to know you. And uh, so if you'd like, head back to the Info Center and get a communication card. we just like to uh, get to know you a little bit better and uh, figure out a way to connect with you and uh, make this church feel a little bit smaller and more connected. So do that. That'd be great. Thank you. Also, um, we've got a minute mingle coming up, but first we've got a baptism or a, a video recap of last week's beach bonfire baptism barbecue. Um, and it was incredible. We had 17 people baptized. And so cast your eyes on the screen. Check it out.
explain it, but All right, yeah. So it was an awesome time. If you want to get baptized, please head back to the info center and let us know. We'd love to have you get baptized. Um, so now we're going to get up and mingle with one another, get to know somebody you don't know, and uh, we'll be back in just a minute. So thanks. First Peter, just for the first couple verses today, and um, come on back. Lord, as we get ready to open up your word, we thank you, God, that your word speaks to us now as it has over this, over the, the, the millennia, Lord God. You have just, you continue, you continue to speak to us and reveal truth to us and so, God, we invite you to do that today. We invite your will to be done. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, something weird was happening to me when I was sitting over there. I, I got like this um, weird equilibrium thing going on. Is that the right word, equilibrium? Lack of equal. You've been through that. Yeah. So, pray. Uh, Jan, why don't you pray for me? 
This is Pastor Jam, by the way, guys. I'm going to let Jam pray for me here. I just feel like something's amiss here. open up your scriptures to him and he stands here ready to uh, speak for you and speak for the congregation and help uh, your Holy Spirit roll down and holiness roll down and mm -hmm. worship roll down today Thank you, Lord. so bring Holy Spirit power mm -hmm. Holy Spirit power in this man and clear up his ears yes, Lord. Mm -hmm. heal his ears Heal whatever is uh, giving him the sense of being off, mm -hmm. knowing that you are on. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And uh, you are here, and you are here before we ask you to show up. Mm -hmm. And Lord, we mm -hmm. just ask that you would uh, be with our pastor here. Thank you, Lord. Uh, let him be to us, uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke yes. and John and uh, Kephas, Rocky, mm -hmm. Peter. Yeah. yeah. Let him be for us uh, your word today. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord, bless him. Mm. Hold him close in your hand. Thank you, Lord. Uh, give him the wisdom and knowledge that deep pool that Proverbs mm. tells us runs deep. He's yes. been storing up your word in his heart. Mm. And there's no lack of faith here. Thank you, Lord. There's overwhelming openness to your spirit. Mm. So healing and strength for the day. Yes, Lord. Your grace sufficient for every need. Mm. Yeah. We pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus name. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. Maybe a chair. So Pastor Jan has been a pastor for decades and decades and decades. He was at the Grover Beach Presbyterian Church for a long time um, while I was an associate pastor at Crossroads. And then when we planted this church, and he resigned in 2008 to do other stuff and take care of his wife. And so thank you, Jan, for praying for me. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you very much. So good to see you here today. So very good. Hey, 1 Peter chapter 1, greetings from Peter. As we said last week, Peter is this... You know, the guy who was kind of gruff and tough and um, always putting his foot in his mouth, always kind of out of step just a little bit with God's plans until, until God really got a hold of him and filled him with the spirit. And then wonderful and supernatural things began to take place in Peter's life. And part of which we see in early in Acts where he preaches and the multitudes come to faith in Jesus. And then we see Peter following Jesus, decade after decade after decade, trusting him, believing the gospel message, and ultimately giving his life for it, as we mentioned last week, crucified upside down, giving himself to the kingdom, because he, he believed it through and through. There was nothing that was going to rattle his faith. Early on, his faith was rattled a bit, but there was something that God did in him. And maybe that's something that God needs to do in us. Maybe you're in a place where it doesn't take much for your faith to be rattled, and you, do, you need God to do something deeper and more significant and supernatural in your lives. And if you need God to do that, just invite the Holy Spirit into your life to do that work and to work, make that work of sanctification real, uh, that work of holiness real in your life. And so we're reading 
1 Peter today, a man who had waffled, <laughs> a man who was kind of gruff and uh, stuck his foot in his mouth and did things he regretted at times, but then God, but God. And that's, isn't that just the beauty of knowing God? We can say with Peter, but God. He rescued me. He sanctified me. He filled me with his power and his grace to do the work that he's called me to do. He's given me the ability to bounce back. And God wants to do that with you as well. If you've struggled, give God the grace Allow God's grace to just fill you and wash over you so that you too can bounce back. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by Jesus. Jesus said to Peter, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the province of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, these are Roman provinces located in what now is called Turkey. It's a place called Turkey. And we have a, a missionary in Azerbaijan, which is near Turkey. And we pray for him. We talked about him last week. And I encourage us to continue to pray for Ilgar in that work in Azerbaijan as he is working to seek and to save those who are lost. But not just to seek and to save those who are lost, but to equip and release workers into the harvest field so that people might come to faith in Jesus. So I just love it that God has had his focus on that region, that part of the world for thousands of years now. Peter wrote this, and now down through the centuries, God is still working in that region. So God is so patient, and uh, if you think God's been patient with you in your life, he, well, he has, but this is just his nature and who he is. He's patient with us so that more would come to faith in him, but also so that we would be sanctified, set apart for his kingdom work. It's, it, it's a process, a lifelong process that God is faithful and patient to accomplish in our lives. So this is who Peter's writing to. Verse 2, it says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago as his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. So who is Peter writing to? Verse 1 says, I'm writing to God's chosen people. We touched on this last week, and we wanted to get through the whole message last week, but we weren't able to with everything else, everything else that was going on. Good stuff, but we, we get back to it, and we're going to get through the whole thing this week. Who is Peter writing to? He's writing to God's chosen people. Your Bible might say to God's elects. And again, who are the elect of God? The elect of God are those who have been chosen, right? So if we participate in an election, we make a choice. We cast our ballot for a person that we long to see elected. We choose that person. That's essentially what the election of God means. It means chosen and by God to obtain salvation through Christ. Christians are called the chosen or the elect of God. And so it brings us to this question, did we choose God or did God choose us? Did we choose God or did God choose us? We tend to think in Greek ways of thinking as opposed to a, a kind of a Hebrew thought. We have this kind of linear process for understanding truth and we're, we tend to be a little more black and white. We want 
black and white answers for the theological questions that we have, really for all of the questions that we have in life. And uh, Jeremy, our youth and family pastor, gave me this book recently. It's called The Forgotten Jesus, How Western Christians Should Follow an Eastern Rabbi. And so there's a great portion of script, uh, 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 writing in here, and I'll just read it to us. It says, and again, this is kind of contrasting Hebrew mindset, Hebrew thinking versus Greek mindset and Greek thinking. They, Hebrews and Greeks think about things altogether differently. And so as we get a taste or a glimpse into a Hebrew way of thinking, we begin to understand Scripture with greater clarity. We have better understanding about the culture in which this truth was communicated and preached and taught and understood. It says here in page 28, the ability to hold multiple options in tension may be why many Western readers of the Bible struggle with paradoxical concepts. We long to have a single answer to a question or a problem, and we apply this approach to doctrines such as divine sovereignty versus free will. The kingdom of God being future versus present and election versus man's responsibility. But these seemingly contradictory doctrines may be congruent. They may be congruent in the Jewish cultural framework that gave birth to Christianity. So if you ask a Jewish man, did God choose you or did you choose God, he will likely say yes. <laughs> so that's kind of a, a little bit of a backdrop for us to help us understand the complexities of some of these things that we study. In our Western culture, we, we just want, we, we want to see things kind of in a linear way. We want to, uh, one plus one equals two, one. We, we just, we want to understand it in that type of a way, but there's paradoxes in Scripture. And if we don't understand that there are paradoxes in Scriptures and that truth is paradoxical, then we will miss some of the deep truths that are in scripture. So uh, sermon title, did we choose God or did God choose us? So we're going to be looking at Arminianism versus Calvinism today. And um, so we're going to be looking at the five points of Calvinism and kind of their counterpart, the five points of Arminianism. And we're going to do our best to try to understand uh, what the Bible talks about when he's talking about election, when he's talking about foreknowledge, when he's talking about sovereignty, when he's talking about predestination, all of these things. So the five points of Arminianism from Jacobus Arminius, uh, he was a theologian who lived from 1559 to 1609. Is that better? Can you guys not hear me? How's that? Oh, there we go. Thank you. So this is my tech team over here. Thank you very much. Can you guys hear me now? <laughs> so the five points of Arminian, Arminianism, um, um, the five points of Arminian, Arminianism from Jacobus Arminius are in contrast to the five points of Calvinism. So Calvinism is a theology, and often we hear about Calvinism versus Arminianism, and they're both, they're, they're, the, they're there are the theological positions that are created by theologians who have studied God's word and 
who just happen to come up on two different sides of an argument. Can we have fellowship with Calvinists as Arminians? Can we have fellowship with Arminians as Calvinists? We better be able to have fellowship because we'll be spending eternity uh, with them forever and ever. Amen. So sometimes we can get a little dogmatic and say, hey, I can't as a Calvinist be a friend with an Arminian or I can't as an Arminian be a friend with a Calvinist. But man, we have to all fellowship together. In any given fellowship, there might be people landing on both sides of the aisle. So Calvinism is a theology. It can be explained simply using a five-letter acronym, TULIP. And so we're going to unpack TULIP today and uh, help us to understand uh, just with greater clarity who God is and what it is that we understand about him. The set of religious principles is the work of John Calvin, again, 1509 to 1564, a French church reformer who had a permanent influence on several branches of Protestantism. So Calvinism and Arminians both have five points, right? Let's compare the two. The Arminian five points are human free will. We'll just take one at a time and just kind of compare the two, and then you can arrive at your own conclusion at the end of it all. And I'll introduce actually a third perspective as well today just to muddy the waters just a little bit more for us. <laughs> human free will. This states that though man is fallen, he is not incapacitated by the sinful nature and can freely choose God. His will is not restricted and enslaved by his sinful nature. So that's kind of, um, I feel like I need to get back on track here. So um, as we talk about that, let's understand something called common grace. The term common grace is not found in the Bible, but it's a term that is used to put a label on an aspect of grace, like the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but it's helpful in describing who God is. And so common grace refers to the goodness of God, the blessings that flow from God that, is, that are common to all people, whether they are believers or unbelievers. So do, you, do we understand common grace? So there's blessings, and I've got a verse that helps us understand it, but there's blessings in this common grace arena that fall on believers and unbelievers alike. So not all of God's blessings only go to God's people, but there's blessings that we all enjoy. A great example of common grace is Matthew 5, 43 through 45. It says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven. And here it is, for he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust alike. So there's the blessings of God that flow, sunlight and rain, on the good and the evil, the just and the unjust alike. The five points of Calvinism can be remembered using the acronym TULIP. So T stands for total depravity. So an Armenian would say, hey, we can choose God. We have the capacity to choose God. T for the TULIP stands for total depravity. It's the belief, the belief in total depravity takes the view that sinfulness pervades all areas of life and human existence. Through the fall of man, humanity is stained by sin in every aspect, heart, emotions, will, 
mind, and body. And this means that people cannot, are unable to independently choose God. They cannot save themselves. God must intervene to save people. And as an Arminian, we would believe that that's true, because I tend more toward Arminianism than Calvinism. So we would agree with some of the statements that Calvin makes, but we also would take issue with some of the things that he says. Calvinism insists that God must do all the work from choosing those who will be saved to sanctifying them throughout their lives until they die and go to heaven. So Calvinists cite numerous scripture verses supporting humanity's fallen and sinful nature, and we're going to look at some of those. And we, we agree. Across the board, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are an evangelical believer, we believe that men are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glorious standard of God, the grace of God. And so we, we all fall short of God's standard. Matthew 7, 21 says, for from within, out of a person's heart, and this kind of illustrates the evil of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. <laughs> All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So we agree together, whether you're on whatever, whatever side of the aisle you're on, we agree that we are sinners in need of profound, the profound grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, an Armenian would agree that while this is all true, man is indeed a sinner in need of God's saving grace, God's common grace in the world allow men to make good decisions. So that common grace that we experience in the world allow men and women to make good decisions. So to illustrate that, we've all known people who don't know Jesus, but who are good. As the world would describe and define good, we know people in the world who don't know Jesus, but who are kind, compassionate, faithful, generous, all of those things. We can all point to people in our lives who don't know Jesus, but who are really, they have a lot of good character qualities in their life. The common grace of God allows a sinful, depraved person to choose God because of that common grace. There's, there's a work of God in the universe that allows people to, even in their broken, sinful depravity, recognize their desperate need for God and able to make a choice. Again, uh, if you want to look at another theological perspective, you can investigate Molinism. There's another uh, th a theologian uh, came up with this. Term, or this uh, perspective, um, it's named for its 16th century Jesuit, uh, Louis de Molina. So these are arguments that the church has been, or debates, arguments, debates, that the church has been going around and around about for hundreds and hundreds of years. So when we get to heaven, we'll have it all straightened up for us and cleared up for us. Molinism is a system of thought that seeks to reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. The heart of Molinism is the principle that God is completely sovereign and man is also free in a libertarian sense. Molinism partly seeks to avoid so-called theological determinism, the view that God decrees who will be saved or damned without any meaningful impact of their own free choice. Today's highest profile defenders of Molinism are William, William Lane Craig and Alvin 
Plantinga. So if you want to look up those guys, that would be on you. So human free will versus the total depravity of man. We would agree that man, we are totally depraved. Calvinists would say because of that depravity, we don't have the capacity to choose God. Arminianism would say, well, we believe that we're depraved, but because of the, the, the grace of the Lord, the common grace of God in the world, where we have the capacity to choose. All right, let's take a look at conditional election versus unconditional election. The Arminian position, conditional election, God chose people for salvation based on his foreknowledge. How many believe that God, has, there's foreknowledge, that there's, God is, so foreknowledge, I'll just read the definition, is the awareness. Foreknowledge is the awareness or knowledge of something before it happens or exists. My theology says that God knows everything before it happens. He doesn't need to look down to discover something, look down. He, he just, he understands it all. Before the foundation of the world, he understood and he knows all truth. So God has foreknowledge of everything so that, so that nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing surprises him. God knows who will respond to the gospel message. God knows before we are born, before we are created, God knows who will be his and who will refuse him. People are elected. They're chosen when they choose or elect God. People are chosen. So you, you want to know if you're the elect? Do you choose God? Then he chooses you. You're the elect. You've been chosen by God. God knows who will choose him, so they are Elected. God is not surprised by anything. He knows all things. It's called the omniscience of God. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Nothing surprises him. If there's nothing that he doesn't know, and any time in history, throughout forever and ever, eternity past and eternity future, there's nothing that God doesn't know and understand and completely grasp. Um, in the tulip of Calvinism, U stands for unconditional election. The Calvinist view says God chooses who will be saved because people are dead in their sins. They are unable to initiate a response to God. In eternity past, God elected certain people to be saved. The saved people are called the elect. God picks them based not on their personal character or, or merit. So God chooses them not based on their personal character or um, merit, but out of his kindness and sovereign will. It also means that election for salvation is not based on God's foreknowledge of who would come to faith in him in the future. So Calvinists believe, since some are chosen for salvation, others are not. So what's the opposite of salvation would be damnation. So Calvinists would believe that some are chosen for salvation, others would be cho chosen for damnation. Those not chosen are the damned, destined for an eternity in hell. So some would argue that God is not fair and... Um, well, that, that, that perspective is not fair, but I don't, I, don't want, I don't like the word fair. It's not a good theological word, but the word just is. The word just describes 
the eternal character of God. He is just. He is faithful, and he is just. So theology is the study of the nature of God. If we want to know who God is, we need to know his nature. And part of his nature is that he is just. And Calvinists and Arminians both believe that God is just. We just kind of interpret things a little bit differently. 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So what do we mean when we say that God is just? That word has meaning and it has weight. And as we understand the meaning and the weight of that word, we begin to get clarity. We begin to get clarity about who God is and how God functions in the world. To, to, to be just means that he is perfectly righteous in his treatment of his creatures. He is perfectly righteous in his treatment of his creatures. God shows no partiality. And if you're taking notes, you can write down Acts 10.34, that God shows no partiality, Acts 10.34. He commands against the mistreatment of others, Zechariah 7.10. And he perfectly executes vengeance against the oppressor. He perfectly executes vengeance against the oppressor, 2 Thessalonians 1.6, Romans 12.19. God is just in meeting out rewards, meaning God is not unjust. He will not forget your work, the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them, Hebrews 6.10. He's equally just in meeting out punishment. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Colossians 3, 25. Justice and righteousness, we see from Psalm 89, 14, justice and righteousness, which always work hand in hand, are the foundation of God's throne. So let's throw out the word fair because it's kind of a loosey-goosey term. It's not a theological term, and let's use the word just. Is God just? Of course God is just. He's not God if he's not just. Now let's compare universal atonement with the L in tulip, which stands for limited atonement. Limited atonement. Arminius believe in, Arminianism believes in universal atonement. So there's universal atonement versus limited atonement. Atonement. There's going to be a test, by the way, at the end. How many know what the tulip stands for? Right here, okay. Universal atonement, the position that Jesus bore the sin of everyone who ever lived. That's universal atonement. That's not universalism, meaning that everybody goes to heaven. We're not talking about universalism. We're talking about universal atonement, that God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we're talking about universal atonement versus limited atonement, which was the Calvinists believe. Limited atonement is the view, <clears throat> is the view that Jesus Christ died only for the sins of the elect. According to John Calvin, Support for this belief comes from verses that say Jesus died for many, such as Matthew 20, 28, Hebrews 9, 28, I'll just read those verses. 
And you can see how someone might arrive at this position. So Christ, Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly, eagerly waiting for him. So the many there, I'm trying to understand the context, the immediate context, the wider context, and the complete context of the scripture speaks to those who give themselves to Jesus, those who are the saved. Not everybody has given themselves to Jesus. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of those who have, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this point is one of the more controversial beliefs of Calvinism. So some, some would say I'm not a five-point Calvinist, believing in all of the tulip, but I'm a four-point Calvinist, which is fine. In some levels, we're probably, some of us might be two-point Calvinists, three-point, we might be zero-point. It's, you know, we, we, these are things that we have to sort out. So those who teach four-point Calvinism believe Christ died not just for the just, but uh, not just for the elect, but for the entire world. And they cite certain verses that we know, are, and I just did John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so the atonement of God is for the world, Acts 2, 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we've got these conflicting kind of ideas. Are Arminians, are Arminian people believe, are they saved? Would, if, if you're an Arminian you know, holder of Arminian theology, would you say that you're saved? Okay, would you say that if you're a Calvinist holding to Calvinist theology, would you, would you say Calvinists are saved? Yeah, we're all part of the same family, right? Um, Molinism, if you kind of have that Molinistic perspective, would, would that person be saved? Yeah, we're saved by grace through faith. And as we sort out these differing theological perspectives, that's why there's a thousand different churches and, and denominations in the world, because we all have differing perspectives. All right, let's talk about resistible grace versus irresistible grace. The I in the tulip stands for irresistible grace. Resistible grace, though, the teaching that the grace of God can be resisted and finally beaten so as to reject salvation in Christ. So resistible grace versus irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is the belief that God brings his elect to salvation through and internal call which they are which they are powerless to resist the holy spirit supplies grace to them until they repent and are born again so irresistible grace would say that god is so determined and extends his grace so strongly that it's ultimately irresistible now there's 
arguments within the church. Can you lose your salvation? Irresistible grace would say, no, you can't because the grace of God is irresistible. And even though you may backslide or fall away for a moment or a time, you will come back because of that irresistible grace. Some, some would say, because that is true, you can't lose your salvation. But others would believe, yeah, yeah, you actually can fall away. Some would say, though, if you've fallen away, you actually weren't saved in the first place. <laughs> so there's all kinds of kind of gray around this idea. Can you lose your salvation? I vacillate on this. I'll, honestly, theologically over the years, I vacillated on this. Can you lose it? If you can, it's very hard because God is tenacious to come after us, tenacious to forgive us, tenacious to love us unconditionally. So if we can lose it, it's pretty hard. It's pretty difficult. But I, I'm not going to say you can't lose your salvation if you walk away from God. And, you know, kind of brings up the question, was Judas saved? <laughs> I guess we'll find out when we get there. Calvinists um, back this doctrine um, with such verses as Romans 9. And so we're just going to kind of go through Romans 9, 10 through 33. And we're going to try our best to kind of unpack things in the next minute or two. And I'll just make this statement. God's foreknowledge allows him or allowed him to, by his sovereignty, direct the affairs of men. Romans 9, 10. And again, if you're a Calvinist here or if you're Arminian, we'll, we'll have a great conversation about it. Um, we'll find out someday. This son was our ancestor Isaac, kind of jumping into the middle of the chapter here. When he married Rebecca, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purpose. He calls people. He calls people but not according to their good or bad works, she was told. Your older son will serve your younger son. So the context of this passage, I mean, again, we look at the immediate context, the, what's happening within the verses around the verse that we're trying to understand, then the wider context, what's happening within the book that we're studying, and then the complete context, what's happening you know, in the total story of the Word of God. What is God's message to us? So the context... Um, in this scripture seems to be talking about not a calling into salvation, but a calling into kind of position or role or responsibility. He calls people, calls people. Context, this calling is not talking about salvation, but not according to their good or bad works. And so this person wasn't called according to their good or bad works, but for God's purpose. God had a purpose for this person. So your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of scripture, I loved Jacob, but I rejected or I hated Esau. I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. That's what the King James says. I think the original language speaks to that hatred. Why? Because Esau rejected God. Did God know that Esau was going to reject him? He did. He absolutely did. And so God, in his foreknowledge and through his sovereignty, was able to shape the events of history and the unfolding of his story, history, his story, because he understood with foreknowledge what everybody was going to do before they were ever created. He knew 
And so he was able to fashion things according to that foreknowledge and in his sovereignty unfold things as he desired. Are we saying, verse 14, then that God was unfair? Of course not. <laughs> For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy we can either choose it, we can, we can neither choose it nor work for it. Interesting. We can either choose it nor work for it. The, the salvation of God we, is given as a free gift. It says here we can either, neither choose it nor work for it. So those are some difficult passages that we kind of have to wrestle through. But let's continue on here. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can either choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, and this is a great and interesting kind of picture, but as we go back and read in Exodus chapter 5, when Moses showed up to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's response, Moses told Pharaoh, hey, I'm gonna, we need to take, I need to take the Hebrew people and go worship the Lord. And Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should fear him or obey him? We get a glimpse into Pharaoh's heart that it was already hard. It was already disobedient to the Lord. And we see as he goes on and interacts with Moses, that God gives him over to his sinfulness and uses his hard heart to further his purposes. And so he takes his hard heart and even hardens it even more to accomplish his great purposes in the earth. But Pharaoh already had a hard heart. So God uses that to further his kingdom. Go back and read uh, Exodus 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. <laughs> now if as a Calvinist, we believe that God can harden hearts, then that's, God can do whatever he wants to do. That's the part of the point is that if God's created humanity, so not to diminish anything of God's power and God's sovereignty and God's ability, he can do whatever he wants to do. And it's just and righteous if God's doing it. But we need to be careful not to misunderstand what God is doing and call, calling something just when it's unjust or righteous when it's unrighteous. We just need to be careful that we're understanding the totality of the Word of God, Old and New Testament, with the clear picture of who God is, the character and the nature of God. So when we look at Scripture, we need to ask ourselves a question. Is this my understanding of the scripture, does it match the character and the nature of God? Does it match the story of the scripture, the complete message, the, the, the context of scripture, the immediate, the wider, the complete context? We need to understand how to ask these questions when we study the scripture. For the scripture says that God told Pharaoh, I've appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others, so they refuse to listen. So God's foreknowledge allows him to know what people will do, and out of his foreknowledge, he acts justly in the earth. He is a just God. Well then, you might say, why, verse 19, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them 
do? And the writer says, no, <laughs> don't, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created by the, uh, say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes a jar out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage in? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy. We were prepared in advance for glory. Are we among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles? Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who are not my people... I will now call my people. Why weren't they his people? Because they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're not part of the chosen nation. But because they responded to the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, now they are his people. So as we think about Calvinism versus Arminianism, um, the question for Calvinists a lot is, hey, why do you evangelize if it doesn't matter what we do? We're going to be saved or not saved. And they talk about human agency. John Piper especially talks about human agency, that God doesn't work outside of human agency. So if people are to get saved, it's usually through the human agency of a preacher or missionary. So there's, in my mind, it contradicts what they believe about salvation because human agency obviously is not capable in our own humanness we're not capable of choosing, but yet God uses human agency, those who are preaching the word of God to reach us. It, for me, it's, there's a conflict there. It's hard for me to, to, to settle that kind of discrepancy or that, that confusion in my heart and mind. And when, we are, uh, and when we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and the Gentiles, concerning the Gentiles, we read that. Let's go to verse... Um, 26, and then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standard, they were made right with God, and it was by faith that this took place. How were they made right with God? Like Abraham, they were made right with God by their faith, their own human agency. And Calvinists would say, well, God saved them, outside of their own involvement because he wanted to save them. But we know from Scripture in the Old and the New Testament that the righteous are justified by faith. We're saved by faith. And so there's a faith element that makes people, allows people to come into the kingdom of God. They were made right with God, and it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. The law was a mirror put up in front of the people so that they recognize their sinfulness. It wasn't to be 
kept for righteousness sake. It was to be acknowledged God is so righteous and pure and set apart that I could never measure up to him with my own good works. And so I must receive his mercy and his grace for Jews and Gentiles alike. Verse 32, I think that's where we are. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. All right? So human, the human part of salvation is faith and trust. We, we are presented, in my opinion, presented with salvation for God to love the world. And we have to decide, are we going to have faith and are we going to put trust in who uh, in the gospel message, in the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's uh, skip the rest of those verses here for the sake of time. All right, finally we get to the end of the argument. Um, Armenians believe a person can fall from grace, um, the, the P in TULIP stands for the perseverance of the saints. So Calvinists would believe that even again, even if you backslide or fall away, that the perseverance of the saints will allow a person to persevere uh, and, and walk with God all the days of their lives, whereas a person, according to Arminian theology, can fall from grace. Let's just take a look. Calvinism teaches that the elect cannot lose their salvation because salvation is the work of God, the Father, Jesus Christ, the Savior, and the Holy Spirit. It cannot be thwarted. None whom God has called will be lost. They are eternally secure. Technically, however, it is God who perseveres, not the saints themselves. I don't think that bears witness with the rest of Scripture. Calvin's doctrine on the perseverance of the saints is in contrast to the theology of Lutheranism and the Roman Catholic Church, which hold that people can lose their salvation. Calvinist supports eternal security with verses such as John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but you are tempted, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Tulip. What's it mean? T. Total depravity of man. Good. You. Unconditional atonement. L. Limited what? Uh, limited. You wrote it down, so. Unconditional election was, yeah, you. Okay, good. Unconditional election. Uh, L, limited atonement. I. Irresistible grace. And P. Perseverance of the saints. So did God choose us or did we choose God? Yes. <laughs> I think it's both. I, I think it's both. We choose God and God chooses us. God chooses us and we choose 
God. Did, in marriage, did I choose my wife or did she choose me? Both, right? Even in an arranged marriage, um, if you look in the Old Testament, you look at some of the patriarchs, they, they had a wife chosen for them, but ultimately they were also, their wives were given the choice to choose them. So I chose my wife, and thankfully she chose me. Now, who chose who first? Well, in this relationship, I chose her first, and then she chose me. But in relationship with God, who chose who first? What came first, the chicken or the egg? I think God chose us, and then we chose him. But we have a choice to put our faith in him and to trust him or not. Uh, that's my perspective. Now, if you disagree, that's okay as well. I, there's lots of verses we could go and go through and read, but we're already over time by 14 minutes, and so I'm going to invite the worship team up. I used to be grateful for the clock. Sometimes I'm not so grateful for the clock. Let's go ahead and stand up. And Lord, I, I pray that I haven't confused people more than they uh, were in the beginning. I pray that uh, there's at least um, a, a kind of a, an, an excitement to kind of look further into it and to kind of consider all of these things when we're reading the scripture and uh, trying to understand the character and the nature of God. I pray that, Lord, we would um, just be able to think deeply about the things of God and arrive at healthy conclusions, godly conclusions that fit the context of scripture. So, Lord, help us. <laughs> help us, Lord. Help me. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name, let's worship. Amen.
us through the rest of the week as we proclaim you to the world around us, our friends and family and everyone we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>